0: Interesting founder, to say the least, a two-times founder. You know, I think that uh, we're going to be learning a bit. Uh, He's raised uh, quite a bit of money. Also, he's done the full cycle, uh, build, scale, finance, exit, you name it. So I think that today's interview is going to be very, very interesting and inspiring. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Jivan Kalanitsi. Welcome to the show.
1: Happy to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So originally, you were born in New York, but I'm sure that you got that drive as well from your parents that came from India. So tell us about your upbringings growing up.
1: Yeah, totally. My parents are amazing people, and I learned a lot from them. You know, for what they did at the time, it's totally wild. Like, my parents did not have an arranged marriage, which was a big deal in India. They had different religions. My dad was Christian, and my mom was Hindu. That was totally not cool. Yeah, many reasons they moved to the United States was like the family was not happy with what they had done. Now everything's great. I mean, my family in India is awesome. Everybody loves each other. at the time, it was pretty controversial. So, you know, my dad showed up in the Bronx with, as he likes to say, like uh, less than $20 in his pocket. And then my mom came later and he had gotten a medical degree. So he got a residency in the Bronx and just kind of scraped it out. And you know I owe a lot to them for sure.
0: So then how was it? The switch going from from such a big city like New York to all of a sudden, you know, being in Arizona in the middle of nowhere there in a small town.
1: It was weird. So yeah, we moved from when I was eight years old. This was really a good career opportunity for my dad to to try and start his own practice, which is kind of harder to do, as you can imagine, in a bigger city where everything's a little bit more established. You know, I do have I was old enough to remember getting on the plane and all that. My dad had driven out earlier six months earlier. And uh, I do remember we got to Kingman at night. So we come over the the highway and I see this, seems like this huge city, all these lights. Wow, big city. And then we drive to our house and then I wake up and it's daylight and there's like nothing. It's just a desert. It just was like an optical illusion almost. So it couldn't have been more different, but I really loved growing up in Kingman. It was an awesome place to grow up in a rural environment, um, smaller community. I think I learned a lot. You just got to be kind of independent in a, in a place like that. So, so uh, yeah, my parents still live there and we like to go back every now and then family visits.
0: So how is it that that switch going from from a place like that to all of a sudden going to Stanford? You know, probably, you know, the one of the best universities out there in, at least on entrepreneurship. And I know that in India too, there's a lot of Uh, pressure for education and for getting like big time degrees from big time universities. So I'm sure that you made your parents very proud. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I
1: don't remember feeling pressure from them. I don't know if they just sort of like installed some weird code in all their children's heads where (laughs) I just, um, I felt not under a lot of pressure in high school. Like I just sort of had this feeling that I had some opportunity or chance of getting into these, Types of universities. And I'm the youngest of three, and my brothers paved the way. You know, they both got into Stanford. So I felt like it's a possibility for me to be able to like do the right things and get the right grades in high school to make that seem that feasible and credible for me to do it. And, you know, I was lucky enough to get admitted. It was funny. You know, you I definitely went into college with like uh, a, just the right healthy dose of overconfidence. I think that that was good. You know, I felt confident that I could do well. Um and definitely got my butt kicked a few times, but overall felt felt good. Felt like a uh, member of the community and opportunity to learn a lot and be around some intensely smart people. Um, I do remember feeling like, man, I'm very good at math. I'm very good at all these things from high school, and then being around people in college for the first time that were truly good at math, like people that were going to make contributions to mathematics. I was like, okay. This guy's actually good at math, you know. Um, So that was that was fun. I remember that kind of experience freshman year. But but overall, I mean, I I love my undergrad experience. I feel I feel so lucky to have gotten a chance to to go to a place like that and try to experiment with a lot of different things and learn about a lot of a lot of uh, different topics.
0: In your degree, also you had artificial intelligence. I mean, that was a time where. You know, not a lot of people were talking about artificial intelligence. I mean nowadays you have artificial intelligence even on your soup, you know, it's uh, everyone yeah. talks about it in the in the venture world.
1: AI was not cool at the time, it is true. But I was very interested in intellectually interested in in a couple of things. Like what makes smart things smart? Like what are the underpinnings of that? And in particular as human beings and we're pretty smart animals, we've built these technologies that make us even smarter. So I was very interested in in that relationship and so starting artificial intelligence was was a way to do that and, and you're right at that, that time it was not um it was not the cool hot topic uh you know a lot has changed since then just technical advances that um that have made it cooler but you know it's something that i've been interested in for a long time
0: so then after after you got done you know with your degree you moved to brooklyn and you had a very short-lived uh job you know obviously you experienced the the dot-com bubble, you know, and, and the dot-com bust, you know? So mm-hmm. so how was that like, you know, like experiencing that companies folding left and right? I mean, I'm sure that you, you you learned quite a bit, even though it was not a lot, you know, your involvement there and, and your experience, but at least, you know, you saw the the damage of, of, of a bubble like that popping.
1: Yeah, certainly. I mean, I was pretty clueless at the time. It just kind of happened to me, but it might've been one of the better things that's happened in my life, because if it weren't for that, you know, it probably continued on as a software developer, maybe climbing the ranks of a company or not, as the case may be. But having a quick stint as a Java developer one of these companies and then suddenly having a lot of time on my hands, like what do I actually want to do, was was great because the rest of my time in New York, I had the opportunity to, to pursue a, a wide variety of, of different things and scratch together enough money to keep going. So so yeah, you know, it's funny. I look back at that experience, but as an entrepreneur, I don't think that kind of part of me really got activated until later in life. I certainly wasn't thinking of myself at that time as a member of an entrepreneurial ecosystem. I was just like, I like writing software. It's fun. I should get a job doing that. And then oops, it's over. What else should I do?
0: So I mean, you did you did a a few things. I mean, from movie TV sets TV sets to TV commercials, ah, uh, very very interesting stuff. And I think that you know something that kind of like changed the course of everything was being at a at a French party and and talking about you know like what you know he was thinking about the media lab that he was involved with and and that kind of like changed a little bit the, the the path for you.
1: Oh, certainly. So when I was in living in New York, I was kind of doing two very separate things somewhat schizophrenically to be honest um on the one hand i was involved with some pretty technical work i was working in a neuroscience lab doing computational modeling and then on the other hand i was working on movies painting sets and then i edited documentaries and then i got into some other more artistic projects that were a little bit technical in nature so kind of doing these two things, and I started to be like, I should figure out what I want to do when I grow up <laughs> a little bit, right? And yeah, a friend of mine who was a roommate of mine at Stanford undergrad, we were in the same major, we were in a band together. Yeah, he went to MIT pretty much right after uh, he finished his undergraduate degree. And yeah, we're at, to at a friend's birthday party. He came down from Cambridge. And uh, he was showing me what he was working on as a grad student at this place called the Media Lab at MIT. And it was super interesting. It was very much a combination of trying to build systems for real end users. It was not just pure technology for technology's sake, but he was using technology as his medium, really, to try to create these experiences. Um, And of course, it was at the grad student level, so definitely not company building, more like doing projects that would get at this. And I thought it was super cool. I was like, man, this is like, I think what I want to do, you know, uh, is bring these two things together. And he was like, yeah, you should try to get into the Media Lab. So I said, okay. Lo and behold, I was able to get admitted. And that was really kind of where things kind of started for me in the world of technology startups there, because the projects we were working on at the Media Lab, you know, turned into my
0: first company. Obviously, I mean, a TED Talk—you know—was what transformed or what led the way into your first company, Siftio. So, so tell us about that transition and and how Siftio, you know, really came about and and came to life.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, Dave and I were working on a project as graduate students called Siftables, and it was um, kind of a user experience concept. We were really really interested in trying to build user experiences that were not mediated just by screens. And so we built these little blocks that were able to tell how they're getting arranged um, with respect to each other with little displays. And um, yeah, we, we um, got the attention of the organizers of the TED conference who wanted us to do a talk um, at the main TED conference. And to be honest, uh, when we first got that, I was like, Dave, man, we are not ready. This thing is not ready to do that. But on the other hand, YOLO let's just do it although YOLO was not a phrase at the time we basically were embodying that like okay we have a certain number of months to get our act together to do an awesome talk and Dave deserves so much credit for doing such an excellent job with that and it went really really well like the vision that we articulated was quite compelling to a lot of people and had a lot of views and then we were faced with the decision should we keep this project as kind of a research project or do we think there's a there there, that this could be a business that could scale, that, that we're building something here that could turn into a company? And that was not an easy decision. But ultimately, we had this test as like, well, what would we regret not doing and do that? I think it's a good test in general. i are trying to decide where to go direction A or B. If you can sense that like, you'll really regret not doing something, that's probably the thing you should do. And so we said, yeah, let's let's go for it. We started a company and had a lot of support. Uh, True Ventures uh, wrote our first check, and they're absolutely an awesome fund. That's kind of a funny story in and of itself, because we're kind of a seed stage company trying to get this technology to work. And it's a hardware company, so it's quite complex. We were on this email list where we were asking for some help, for some manufacturing expertise, and it just so happened that one of the True Ventures guys was on this list. And he hit us up, Puneet, awesome guy, a couple of times, he's like, guys, if you're serious about this, you should really talk. You need to raise some money. And and we did. And so that launched Siftio, which was basically a consumer hardware play. Um, it's an absolutely great experience. Learned a lot.
0: So what was the, what was the business model there at G1? What, what was, how were you guys making money? Very simple consumer hardware play, kind of
1: like a um, hardware plus digital sales type, type thing. So we would sell these products in retail, um, these intelligent blocks and our target customer there was like children and families and then we would follow it up with digital sales of basically like game content on the system you can kind of think about it as a similar model to like um a game console really like what how nintendo's business model works or for sony or microsoft for those business divisions
0: mm. so then how much capital did you guys end up raising for for siftio
1: how much did we raise i, uh, I think about 13 million dollars. 30 million.
0: So, when you were doing your Series C, it was a little bit more bumpy than what you had expected. So, what happened there?
1: Yeah, totally. So, as I like to say, I've been pretty fortunate in fundraising, and I'm like six for seven or something. But it's the time that didn't work that maybe is the most instructive. So, we'd raised our series, we had Siftio, we'd lost our second generation of our product. And um, our users really, really loved it. So, we had some good uh, kind of product market fit flips there. But um, the amount of revenue we were driving was just not enough, to be honest. And there's a variety of reasons for that. And so we went out to raise our Series C to fund further development of the business. And uh, we had to... I would give ourselves a lot of credit for being extremely methodical about that fundraise. So we said, okay, we have this much cash and this much runway. At the current burn rate, it'll last till like month X. Um, if we don't raise fundraising by this date, then a runway will be too short for us to continue running the business and pivot to something more sustainable. So we will run our fundraising process to this date. If we don't succeed, then we have these like pivot strategies that we'll execute on, which will then extend the runway of the company to keep operating. That's exactly what we did, and that's the company up for success where ultimately we got acquired. But in that fundraising process, it was it was pretty pretty clear that we just had not driven the type of repeatable revenue results that the the fundraising community was looking for for companies at that time, and we just had to like take that on the chin and and move on, Um, because the business that we were driving was quite capital intensive, right? So we had to get over a kind of a hump. The economics to really seem super attractive. And we just hadn't gotten there. And we kind of deemed that we wouldn't be able to get there without a big infusion of cash where we had to like, shift the business. One other thing I will say about that I give mega credit to the leadership of siftio at that time because we were very clear eyed about the situation. We we're like, all right, guys, here's our timeline. If we're unable to put more cash in the tank, we'll have to shift. Like, let's all figure out what the right opportunities for the company would be. And the leaders of the company, we've got together in a room and just ironed those out. And a lot of those pivot strategies would mean that that particular person and their team would no longer be part of the company. And I give major credit. No one was being overly protective of themselves or their own careers. They were like, definitely thinking about what's best for the company over themselves or their people. And I remember feeling that was a huge learning moment of like, somehow we built a culture where the people were, our team was like very loyal and emotionally bought in to the company and what it was trying to do without putting themselves above above the company's needs. So there's a, a variety of lessons at SIFTIO I can unpack that relate to that. So yeah, that's what happened. And then, you know, we were fortunate that it all worked out in the end.
0: And you ended up getting this acquisition from 3D Robotics. So obviously you were uh, with 3D Robotics for quite a little bit, Uh, and then after this you went to Lux Capital, where you were doing the Entrepreneur in Residence program. And what I like to ask you here is, what is the VC mindset? I mean, what what are they looking for, and what do they care about? You know, after having been on on the operator's role, you know, on that other side of the table doing the capital raise to now being on the on the on the other side of the table where you are looking at how that capital is being deployed on these other individuals that are coming and are right across the table now where you used to be. What what were some of those things that you're like, wow, you know, like I didn't know this. This makes sense.
1: You know what's funny is like I think having an experience at a at a fund like Lux, which is an awesome fund and they were like kicking But you know, I'm I'm very grateful to be part of their portfolio. Very interesting experience. In many ways, what it did is it confirmed some of the beliefs I had about the VC mindset as an entrepreneur, but put them in, in a higher resolution with a bit more empathy for that position. So, you know, entrepreneurs complain about VCs a lot. And I think some of the roots of their complaints are have a kernel of truth to them, but they're counterproductive complaints. And they don't help you build your company. So well, let me give you a couple of examples. Like, oh, VCs, they're all sheep. They like just follow the latest thing and they'll never willingly to take a risk. It's like, yeah, but if you're a VC, like you have to make decisions on where you're allocating capital in the long-term way in a high-risk manner. So how do you do that? Like, how do you make those decisions? The truth is it's a competitive environment. So you don't have the time to like do all this analysis to really make sure it makes sense and get in deep. You have to find really compact, fast signals for whether a company is gonna be a good opportunity or not. You know what's a good compact signal is what other people think. You know? Like that is a very compact signal of whether a company is good or not. And um it could be subject to bad effects like uh like herd mentality, but if you are truly relying on deep analysis, you will never write a check. You'll miss out on every single opportunity. Um, and then you'll make no money for your limited partners. It is a competitive environment, it's not easy. And so that's kind of why that works. You know, from my experience specifically at Lux, I can remember the partnership would ask me, Hey, what's your opinion about company X? And, um, and I'd say, Oh, this or that. And what I realized though, that I was basically sealing the fate of those companies with regard. To the partnership in like these five minute conversations. Because it's just the fact it's just the only, not the only, but it is an important way for VCs to make decisions. Now, of course, the good ones are thesis driven. So they put a lot of time into thinking about where they think opportunities are. But then a lot of the actual allocation of capital selecting certain companies comes through talking to people. So yeah, our VC sheep, I guess you could say that, but it's not like a stupid or maladaptive strategy. Another thing is that they're human beings, man, with like lives and pressures and concerns. So yeah, you know, it can be frustrating to be in that meeting where you think the partner, maybe she or he's not really paying attention to what you're saying and they're checking their phone. That's a bad behavior, definitely. And for a VC like that, is part of their professional duty to like pay attention when they're talking to an entrepreneur. But sometimes they said that they're supposed to, that they promised to pick up the kid after school, and they forgot. And then their partner is blowing up their phone. That happens. I mean, like that, that happens. Yeah. And um, I think that is sometimes the explanation is not that they don't care about you or that they're mean, but they're just dealing with something in your life. And then I think the the last thing is your idea is not original. I mean, I think I, that's something everyone knows a VC uh, or I wasn't really a VC. That's an overstatement. That's, that's what I learned spending time at a, at a firm. And you kind of know that intellectually as an entrepreneur that you're working on something. You probably have competitors, and whatnot, but you're not. If it, the idea is kind of good, you are not the only one working on it, and you'll win based on your your execution more than anything else. And you know, I had these experiences where I would be on uh, the pitch meetings from some companies coming in, um, and they'd be back to back to back meetings, and I would sit there because the partners say, "Hey, what's your opinion on these companies?" And I'll tell you, it was crazy. It was like the same company came in three times. It was crazy. Like they said the exact same thing, the exact same thing. And by the way, these were like very specific companies doing these really specific technology problems, not like general consumer or mobile applications. Like we are solving this problem, which has to do with the way 3D models are generated by these programs or whatever. And these companies would come in and say the same thing. And I was just like, wow, <laughs> like you're definitely not the only one, which is good to know, you know, and the way the partnership would make the decisions was had a lot to do with their perception of the founders and their interpersonal dynamics. So you'd have a meeting with company A, and they would say, we've got idea X and company B has idea X. And with company A, the founders seem a little standoffish and then maybe they're like contradicting each other a little bit. And these pick up any signals. And company B doesn't do that. Company B wins. Company A will not
0: get a check written for them. It's incredible the the patterns, no? know, and 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 ultimately, I mean, it's is a placing a bet in people at the end of the day, and 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 that's remarkable that you were able to to experience that. But in your case, I mean, really going through, you know, the uh, entrepreneur in residence program there, I mean, was the segue for uh, for you starting Open Space. So tell us what was that process. of of really, you know, like coming across the idea and and really, you know, bringing it to market?
1: Open space, uh, without going through exactly what we do, um, we are a computer vision company that's kind of a vertical SaaS company. Like we are targeting builders, general contractors, real estate developers, and we're trying to make their lives easier by producing visual records of what is going on in their projects so people can see what's going on without literally needing to be there. Our approach to that market had a few key ingredients. So first of all, this may be true mostly for folks that are working on kind of enterprise solutions or vertical solutions. Um, What really worked well for us is having past experience in this world. So 3D Robotics, we're building products for these folks. I think it can be quite challenging to build products for um, these types of markets without a little bit of information ahead of time, enough to be dangerous, which is what we have. So that was one component. So with open space, uh, to be super clear, my co-founders, Mike and Philip, are also friends of mine from grad school, both of their PhDs, they're at MIT, and um, kind of a basket of topics and graphics and computer vision and AI, I guess you could say, is what they what they what they did. also, it's also uh, you know, gotten got their work featured in a TED talk, which is absolutely truly amazing. That started Mike's first company. Mike built a video analytics company that Twitter acquired. So yeah, I mean, what happened was Mike called me one day. He was, you know, finishing up his tour of Judy at Twitter, and he and Philip started to work on new ideas. He told me about it, and I had just been in this world of construction and real estate development, so I just was able to connect the dots and say, "Man, this idea would be really valuable for this gigantic market." Like I'm pretty sure, you know. So we had that insight based on past experience. And I think it's pretty hard to have those types of plays if you don't have some kind of exposure to that to that customer. And the approach we took was, again, pretty methodical. You know, my background ended up being very product-oriented. So I said, okay, guys, we can do a lot of different stuff with our lives. We don't have to start a company. Uh, let's just test and see if this company concept could be good. I'm a big fan of using this book, Four Steps to the Epiphany by Steve Blank, kind of lean startup approach. And being pretty pretty methodical, pretty objective, and pretty relentless and brutal with, with the process. Like knowing what is true, whether it's painful or not, it's absolutely critical to running a business. And this process helps you do that. We had a bunch of folks we knew from the industry from past experience, so we weren't speculating. So we started building prototypes and hanging out on job sites all day and trying them out. And, you know, again, we were fortunate to have these existing relationships. We were fortunate to have enough like time and resources to devote to testing this idea out. And um, certainly I'm happy to talk a bit about the actual aha moment we had. And we literally had an aha moment. It's not some made up thing, truly. Um, but once we had it, we had the aha moment of the pain we really were solving for those customers. We had the empathy for them based on my past experience with manufacturing, where I really get the pain and suffering of building stuff in real physical reality. And we had, kind of coming from the Lux capital point of view of my time there, a very objective, cold blooded analysis of what are the ingredients of a high growth technology company. And with those insights in hand, we're like, okay, this is a good idea. So I was able to go back to the partners at Lux and say, all right, I think we have something that could really work. And they were like, sounds good. And so we raised a little money in 2017 fall, and we've been off and running ever since.
0: And how much capital have you guys raised to date for this?
1: We've raised about $84 million.
0: $84 million. And if you were, let's say you were to sleep, you know, tonight, and you wake up in a world where you're waking up five years later, tremendous news, and you wake up in a world where the vision of open space is fully realized, what does that world look like?
1: Yeah, I think there's two things. I'll describe a little bit about what we do, otherwise this vision statement won't make any sense, (laughs) and then tell you about it. So, yeah, again, what we do is we made it really easy to have a full visual record of really any space indoors now. If people have used Google Street View, it really looks similar to that. But we've kind of created this experience for enterprises. And um, what we, we figured out, honestly, is we just cracked a code on ease of use. So... We made it very, very easy for builders to just, almost as a byproduct of them walking around a job site, they have a camera that's kind of riding along, and then we take a bunch of computer vision techniques to take that video file and turn it into this experience. So the benefit of that is that as a, as a project manager or builder, you don't have to rely on your memory to know what was there or rely on someone else's memory or some written report. You have this ex- experience of having like a time machine you can just go look and directly experience what's going on on floor six, you know, unit 603 two weeks ago when the drywall was put in. And you have an objective record of what's there. So we're, we're creating a system of record for real physical world of people whose jobs depend on on managing real physical reality. And it's going pretty well so far. So my vision for the future is, is this. like I think that experience of being able to like look and see what is happening in the physical space, well, on your phone and computer, no matter where you are, will just be normal. It'll be ubiquitous. it'll just be taken for granted uh, in the in the near future. You know it's kind of like um, my analogy is this we take Google for granted. we just do If you want some information, you need to search for it. If you took it away and I said, actually Android, no you can't you can't use Google. you have to go to the library to look up that piece of information you'd be like, that's crazy and I and I'm quite confident that the experience we provide will be like that for our our market. And when we started the company that was kind of a hope and a dream but I've got increasing conviction about it just based on our customers experience what they tell me about it. And the culture for our customers has changed rapidly. You know, I used to say that that experience of being able to like see something without literally being there will become table stakes for our customers in like 5 years. They'll become totally totally dependent on it in a good way. They'll just they'll make their lives easier. I think that five years has really been fast-forwarded to like basically now. And the pandemic for us was a huge accelerator where people simply could not physically be in the spaces they needed to be in or they thought they needed to be in to get their work done. So they had to figure out a way around that. And we had a, the right idea at the right time with the right execution. So our revenue growth and the amount of data that we've uh, process really started skyrocketing at that time. I think it was a class of companies that that enabled the ability to be productive without physically being co-located in the space. And we were part of that crop of companies that have started experiencing hyper growth. So Zoom, of course, is that for office workers. And then there's some article written about us that we're like, open spaces, with the Zoom for the building industry, which is a nice, flattering accurate enough headline so obviously the, the needs of people that work out in real physical reality are different than people work behind desks but we try to help solve that problem
0: so so let me ask you let me ask you a question then because because some something really you know comes to mind here that i like to ask you because you've been at it you know now this is your second company you know since 2017 as as, as you were saying you've raised you know quite a bit of money 80 84 million uh, on the last company, you also raised money. You didn't exit. So imagine if I was to put you in a time machine and I bring you back in time to that point where you're thinking about maybe like, starting a company, which eventually became Siftio, but your first company. But imagine you know, you will have the opportunity of going back in time and having a chat with your younger self and being able to give that younger Jivan one piece of pieces advice before launching a company. What, what would that be and why, given what you know now?
1: I think just being real with yourself and with reality, know what is true and it's far better to take a take a punch in the face from reality when you're early than waiting and being in a delusional state for a year. Um, we had a guy that gave us some fantastic advice early on. His name was Errol and he was at the National Science Foundation. And they provide a little seed capital for us. It's an awesome program for entrepreneurs working on technically challenging concepts. The National Science Foundation is is cool. They help support you. And this guy had a real entrepreneurial mindset. And he really emphasized, like, guys, you've got to understand where your customer is. You exist for the sole benefit of your customer, period. Uh, not because you think your project's neato. It's like, it has to be for the benefit of the customer so valuable that they're willing to pay you money for it, right? And, you know, we took that advice, but only 70% of it, where we did all the right things of really immersing ourselves with our customers' lives and doing tons of interviews and doing repeatable things. I think what we did wrong, though, is we kind of understood some of the insights of what they really, really wanted, but we didn't hold ourselves accountable for truly delivering them. So our first generation of our product had, had parts of it that just were not, Going to be acceptable to the end user, it weren't going to be, and but we were too, we were daunted by by the engineering challenges of actually solving what the customer was asking for, so we kind of let ourselves off the hook, which was um, you know, didn't kill the company or anything, but it definitely wasted time and it was a mistake. So, that's one piece of advice: is whatever you got to do to establish an objective truth finder, do it and take it seriously. And it can be painful man but the pain you experience pain experience early is a lot a lot less painful than pain experience late that's one thing and the second thing i learned at 50 is um it's not about you it is not about you as a founder in so many ways it's not about you because you're not going to do all the work that's like doesn't scale it's impossible and at a certain point it's not even about your ideas like Ideally, you're hiring a team that is better than you at basically anything that you could do. I mean, I like to think by myself as pretty good at a lot of different things, you know. Um, but I know that the engineers we have would make me look like an idiot within five minutes of me trying to build something. Um, I know our finance people, uh yeah, I can hang with them. But certainly, I don't have their depth of knowledge. And that's a good thing. Um and learning to rely on your team's creativity and empowering them was so absolutely critical there's one moment where where this really crystallized for me where uh dave and i were thinking about this is our first company thinking about what we needed to do between generation one and generation two so as a hardware company you kind of put products out in generations right and we had these three pieces of feedback that we knew we needed to solve in fact, we kind of knew them from the first generation, but after launching the first generation, it was crystal clear we needed to solve them. And we're in a conference room in our office, just banging our head against the wall because we just didn't know how to d- address them. And I said, what if we just do two out of three? And still, we couldn't figure it out. And I literally had my head on the table in my, my arms. And then I don't know if it was Dave or if it was me. And we were like, you know... There are a lot of really smart people outside this room in this office like why don't we just ask them for help on how to solve this and it was kind of an extreme no duh moment but but we realized it and so we set up like an exercise to help solve these problems like got some pizza um you know we've architected it in a way that it was more likely to be productive Everybody like was writing a bunch of ideas furiously on these little pieces of paper. They all left, and so Dave and I are in the office at night, kind of leafing through these pieces of paper, and we're like, "Wow, dude, if we just take like this page and this page? I think we have it. Like this will solve all our problems." And then I was like, "Okay, life lesson, entrepreneurial lesson: don't put it all on you. It's not about you. Like it's about your team. You know, early on at a company, yeah, you do everything. You have to have all the ideas, and you can never shirk from your duties." But the role of the CEO or founder really has got to shift from do all the work, have all the ideas, to something I'd like to think is more akin to an editor in chief. You're not writing the articles. Your team is doing that. You're there to help make sure they're coherent. You're cutting all the good but not great ideas. Can you provide feedback here and there to make things a little bit extra extra better? So yeah, if I had the time machine, I think I would I would bore my younger self with all this advice which my younger self probably would ignore because we humans seem like we can only learn from experience. But um, that's what I would say.
0: I love it, Jivan. So for the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? Uh,
1: yeah, you can hit me up on LinkedIn, actually. That's the easiest. So my name is Jivan, J-E-E-V-A-N. J-E-V-A-N. If you type Jivan in open space, you'll probably find me. And I like to respond to, to everything if I can. So you can hit me up there. That's a good place to start.
0: Amazing. Well, Jivan, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It
1: was totally my pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business,